Victor Conti, founder of the company behind the most prominent illegal performance-enhancing drug ring in sport, Shane Mosley, Marion Jones, Barry Bonds among his clients, then the feds brought him down. All these agents with guns pointed at you and screaming at the top of their lungs, and it was very scary. Conti makes shocking allegations about elite athletes and governing bodies of sport. Jackie Joyner Kersey, what were you told about the positive test? That it was covered up. Plus, allegations of perjury committed by the lead investigator in the upcoming Barry Bonds trial. The government's going to look like the Three Stooges. All that's coming up next, right here on the In-Depth with Graham Bensinger podcast. How challenging, if at all, did you find it to bring in new athletes to work with post-Balco? It's very challenging. What, what's most challenging about it? Well, when I see, as an example, uh, let's just say a husband would very much like to work with me, but the wife says, listen, you, know, you need to not associate with this guy because you don't want this taint on, upon you. Um, others that are, are re willing to be open about it, and some choose to work with me, but, uh, but have this be kept just between us. And, and there are those that have been threatened or, or given opportunities. Dwayne Chambers is an example where they basically demanded that he come forward publicly and, and announce that uh, uh, he had terminated his relationship with me. Dwayne says in his own book that, you know, he's like a son to me and I'm like a father figure to him. And we were very close and always have been and I'm sure we always will be. But publicly, you know, he was forced uh, by his, the governing body of track and field there in the UK to uh, publicly announce that he was terminating his relationship. And there are others that uh, the media, you know, questions why the athlete would trust me, why the athlete would work with me. You know, uh, there have been those that have said lots of things that, you know. How would you respond to those criticisms? I understand them. I really do. It's something that uh, I don't think that I will ever completely overcome this. It, it's a challenge on a daily basis. And, and uh, I really enjoy being in the trenches working with athletes. And, and it's just a part of, of my past and uh, that will be with me for the rest of my life. And I'm going to have to accept that uh, some people uh, are willing and able to find forgiveness in their hearts and others are not willing to do so. I mean, I, I think that you know, forgiveness is very important for people to learn. And what I've learned is, is it's very difficult to learn to forgive yourself. Why do you say that? Because you feel responsible and you feel guilty and, and you know, especially when the damage that has been done is of the magnitude, um, as in the case of, of Balco and, and what happened there. I mean, some consider that to be the 9-11 the of sport. September 3rd, 2003, just afternoon, uh, a team of federal law enforcement officials raid Balco. What transpired that day? Well, there were three of us. Uh, that were standing in, in the front office and, and the building was on a corner. We were actually looking out the front window. Uh, I was standing talking with uh, the vice president uh, of Balco at the time, Jim Valenti. And here came probably six, seven, eight black cars that came in the front parking lot out. We were on a corner around the street corner and these federal agents with flak jackets and and uh, guns and, and assault rifles and began just you know filing out of the car and lining up and coming through the front door and 
within a matter of less than a minute. It was a helicopter right at the front. It was like what you see in the movies. It was, it was surreal and, and you're seeing all these agents with guns pointed at you and screaming at the top of their lungs and it was very scary. Why did they actually come to the Balco offices that day? Well, as everyone knows about the dumpster diving of, of um, Jeff Nowitzki that for about approximately a year uh, before the, that day of the raid, I believe it began in August of 2002. And Nowitzki he, being the lead Balco investigator. Yes, he was, he was going through our trash on a weekly basis until he accumulated information that he you know, took to uh, um, the U.S. Attorney's Office and eventually they got the search warrant. But before that, they'd been looking at banking records and, they, and uh, emails and, and uh, you know, they were collecting all, all sorts of information that they had. And, and so that's what they were looking for is a, a steroid distribution ring. IRS Special Agent Jeff Nowitzki claims in his sworn declaration, Article 10, and I'm going to read it to you. Um, Upon confirming that the premises had been secured, I returned to Conti, James Valenti, and Joyce Valenti, all of whom were sitting in the waiting room area with several agents. I explained that we were there to execute a search warrant on the business. I personally showed Conti, James Valenti, and Joyce Valenti a copy of the face sheet of the search warrant. Your response to that would be what? That's a lie. A lie. That's a lie. What happened? Uh, he never showed us the search warrant at any point in time. And I filed a declaration under penalty of perjury as well as Jim Valenti that we never saw any search warrant. Article 21 of the, the sworn declaration, he says, in speaking with Conti, Conti had informed us that he kept drugs in a storage locker located on Adrian Road in Burlingame. For the third time, I showed Conti a copy of the search warrant and went over it with him in explaining that the storage locker was not covered under the terms of the search warrant, I did not threaten Conti with the possibility of a search warrant if he refused to consent to the search of the storage locker. That's a lie. That's not what happened. What he really said was, we know you have a storage locker on Adrian Court. And you know, you can do yourself a favor by cooperating and taking us over there and opening it up, or within a couple hours we'll have a search warrant, we'll be in there either way. And all this other stuff that my interpretation of it was, it was coercion. You know, he claimed that he had 50% of the say-so in the case and that the, the U.S. attorney had the other 50 and all these other things. And, and that he had the ability should, to give you flexibility if you cooperated. All sorts of, of you know, between the lines threatening type of stuff was being presented to me. Coercion was being, no question, uh, this was going on. Another part of the memorandum of interview, article number 11, uh, or article number eight, rather, Nowitzki says, Conti only gives the clear and the cream to athletes personally when they visit the lab. Conti charges $350 for a cycle of the clear and $350 for a cycle of the cream. Conti has given the clear and the cream and advised on its use to the following professional athletes in the following sports. And then he lists the athletes. Your response to that? That just didn't happen. That's not accurate. There were some athletes that paid 300 for both, but nobody ever paid 350 for each, you know, implying 700 total. I have no idea where that number came from. I never told him that. So that, that part is just, uh, you know, it's fabrication. It's mm -hmm. just, there's no, they can't show checks, they can't show testimony, they can't show anything that that information is correct. And I certainly didn't, I didn't tell him that. Now, what happened was he made a list he had a piece of paper, and, and this is all in my sworn declaration, 
that was filed in federal court, and it said track and field and football, NFL and MLB. And he had written all these names. Did you give him the names? No, he already had the names. Okay. He'd he'd written all the names. And then he said, was there anybody else? And he shows me the list, and he's reading off the name of list in track and field. The context was athletes that you have worked with. Now, you have to understand that for 16 years before Balco was rated, I I started actually uh, working with world-class athletes in 1984, so whatever that is, to 2003. And and what I mean by the 16 years was before I took the trip down the slippery slope and started helping athletes. So when he said, I might like to make a list of the athletes that you've worked with. Have you worked with these athletes? Yes. Was there ever any mention of steroids or drugs or anything like that connected with those athletes? The answer is no. And I never talked about any individual athlete. I might have said, oh, well, you forgot this one and you forgot this one. But it was not in the context of you gave these athletes drugs. Nowitzki's memorandum of interview, Article 9, he writes, None of the agents carried automatic weapons, rifles, or assault weapons, and there were no helicopters associated with the operation. While some of the agents initially involved in securing the premises may have put their hands on their guns or briefly drawn them as they secured the facility, no agent ever pointed a gun at Conti, James Valenti, Joyce Valenti, or any other Balco employee. That's a lie in two-part. They had the guns out. We looked at the guns. They're coming at the three of us. Well, they, they got a half circle of officers surrounding us like this. The guy's standing right in front of me holding an assault rifle. All three of us are sitting there looking at it. Let's go into the second aspect of your question. They claim that they had nothing to do with the helicopter being there. That's a lie. I befriended someone at NBC and they told me that they, first of all, that they were tipped off. Secondly, that they, they were second in line, so when they pulled up, the cameraman filmed the helicopter. So I actually got the number off of the helicopter. And I went to whatever it is, Department of Aviation, it's in Springfield, Missouri, gave them this information and found out that it was a company called Helinet. They do a lot of government work, including the transport of nine U.S. presidents. Now, I wrote to them, and and we planned to try to subpoena all the records for that helicopter and get this information and present it at this evidentiary hearing, basically to show that Nowitzki had committed perjury. Given how many times you're alleging Jeff Nowitzki, the lead Balco investigator, has lied, according to you, explain the irony in that, given what many of the athletes he's investigating have gone to trial for. Perjury. And I've said this numerous times. What you have is a group of cheaters chasing a group of cheaters. It doesn't make it right for the athletes to do what they did. It's wrong. It's all wrong. But when I see that because they're law enforcement, who's holding them accountable? They did an internal investigation of Jeff Nowitzki based upon money that was missing when they raided Greg Anderson's house. $100 bills that were missing, that were there, that were counted by one group, and by the time it got to the next group and transferred from a bank in Oakland to San Jose, money's missing, cash. These are IRS agents that verified that cash was there, and then when it gets, by the time it gets to another location, part of it's missing. I don't think that's good for the credibility of these agents when they, when they get on the stand.
to testify. The Game of Shadows, uh, the book by two then San Francisco Chronicle reporters, Lance Williams and Mark Fainaruwada. Uh, it's about Balco, the performance enhancing drug usage by many athletes. What's the likelihood that Nowitzki was one of their primary sources? I think it's very likely. Well, look at the information that's in the book. I mean, I went to the Balco uh, parking lot at, you know, 12 o'clock and it was, a, it was 60 degrees and the moon was out bright and, you know, uh, all the, how descriptive it is of all the details about some of the things that he was doing. When he was in the car with Barry Bonds and what was being said and, and all this, I don't believe that it came from the other people in the car and I've talked to some of them. I believe that this information came from him. They refer to him in some of the, you know, uh, sections as a hero, but he's never mentioned in the acknowledgments. And yet other IRS agents are, all sorts of other law enforcement, but not him. San Mateo County Narcotics participated in the raid of Balco. What knowledge do you have of some of their undercover officers purchasing illegal performance enhancing drugs for their personal use? Uh, yes, that's my understanding. That's what I've been told. And I do know that there was an investigation, an internal investigation within that department. And I do know that some of the people that were the recipient uh, of those uh, anabolic steroids during the investigation transferred out to different uh, lo nearby locations and then once the heat was gone they, they, uh, they came back to that department. The department that participated in, in Valco, the investigation, people in that department, they themselves were using some of the very drugs that you were being busted for? Yes. Tell me about the time Jeff Nowitzki the IRS special agent, lead Balco investigator, almost got in a fight with Barry Bonds, then trainer Greg Anderson. Well, this was told by, to me by, you know, a friend of, of Greg's. I don't know that they would want this information, you know, out there, but apparently what I was told by the person who was there is that uh, Nowitzki's uh, daughters played soccer in Burlingame there, where Balco was, and, and Greg's... Uh, son and uh, this other gentleman's daughter uh, played uh, soccer there, not necessarily at the same game, but, but at the same park or wherever they held these at the time. And as it turned out that uh, after the game, as they walked back to their cars, that uh, Nowitzki with his wife and two daughters and, and Greg's friend and, and his son and her, his daughter were parked here and apparently there were some looks ex exchanged uh, at each other. And uh, what I was told was that Nowitzki put his family in the car and then walked over and got in their face and, and asked if they, if they wanted a piece of him and, and was basically challenging them to a fist fight in the parking lot of a park where the kids played soccer. And what was the response of Anderson and his friend? Well, you know, Greg, with all the problems and issues, legal issues that he had going on at the time, didn't want any parts of this. And, of course, there was, you know, some evil looks and, and words that were exchanged and, and then, uh, you know, they got in the car and left. But it's uh, quite interesting that uh, a law enforcement uh, guy would uh, try to take it there personal, face to face, bumping chest, pressing noses and, and uh, basically challenging somebody that you arrested to a fist fight. What do you feel you did wrong when it came to Balco? I think I was very reckless. I didn't understand at the time how many people would be harmed. 
I, in the back of my mind, I, I knew that what I was doing was illegal. I knew that it was wrong. And there was a rationale, and I know that everyone doing it doesn't, you know, make it okay. And I think that it was when I received information where I knew directly from an Olympic official that positive drug tests had been covered up and that this was really about those at the highest level who received the majority of the financial gain from sport, enabling, harboring, and promoting this culture. And over the years, you work with athletes and you meet their wives and their kids and their families, and these are smart guys, and, and they care about life after sport, and it was the ability to help them make informed decisions. That was the rationale in my, in my mind. And bring it out of the dark alley in the trunk of a car behind a gym somewhere and try to help them do it more safely. Now, I was obviously doing much more than that. I'm just trying to tell you the thought process that kind of where I could give myself the green light to join the culture. I, I knew this had been going on. I worked with all sorts of world-class athletes for 16 years before I made that decision to go down the slippery slope. Do you believe the illegal performance-enhancing drugs that you were giving to the athletes should be legal? Do I think that somebody who's 22 years old should be using testosterone, cream, or injection to enhance performance? No. What about steroids, EPO? EPO is a dangerous drug. Uh, anabolic steroids, you have to understand that there's a big difference between using replacement dosage of testosterone, 100 to 200 milligrams a week, and 5,000 milligrams a week like some of the pro bodybuilders do. So it's the difference in, is it okay to drink a glass of wine with a meal a couple times a week as opposed to drinking a gallon a day? Do I believe that, that it should be, if medically prescribed, and if appropriate. Do you feel if an athlete was following your program for illegal performance enhancing drugs, it could be done safely? It takes very close monitoring. Safely, what, what does safely mean? There I mean, do, do you that... consider the programs that you were prescribing to the likes of Marion Jones, Tim Montgomery, others, Kelly White, safe? We monitored everyone very closely. They called it Victor's short leash. So if I gave them the clear and the cream, it was in a single one-month supply, which was three weeks on and one week off. And if they didn't come back and do testing, then I'd cut them off. Is there risk involved? Yes. So is it completely and totally safe to use EPO? Of course not. Kelly White had said that your illegal performance-enhancing drugs that she took following your program caused acne on her shoulders and face, changed her voice tone, made it a strain to talk caused her to have a period every other week. Uh, I mean, is she was following your program. Are those results consistent with ones that you would expect for an athletic figure that was following your program then? My recollection is that yes, in the initial stages, she did miss a period. Thereafter, we, we reduced the dosage significantly. And you have to understand that safety was really important to me. I didn't want these people's blood on, on my hands. It was relatively safe, as safe as possible. Right. I tried to be a man of full disclosure and tell these athletes, listen, you know, here's what I know about this stuff. Here's the testing that we've done. Here's what it seems to do. There's risks attached. 
basically that it, it seemed to enhance recovery and enable you to train for harder and recover more quickly. Track and field today, what percentage of the elite athletes today do you believe are using illegal performance enhancing drugs? I would say that it's definitely less now than it was pre-Balco. Uh, if, if before it was 80%, it might be 50 to 60% now, so I think there's a significant reduction, but it's still a majority. How easy is it for an Olympian to use illegal performance enhancing drugs and not get caught? Uh, relatively easy. How so? The major loophole is with the missed tests. And the way it is now, you can get two missed tests. The third one is considered the same as a positive test and you'll receive a, a suspension or be banned. They do not disclose this information. We know that in the neighborhood of 8 to 10 percent of the tests when they go to uh, collect the samples and the athlete's not there, that they're issuing missed tests, but you don't know that athlete A or athlete B has a missed test. So here's basically what they could possibly do. In the year leading up to the Olympic Games, and you're a world-class sprinter, and uh, you take a risk and you say, well, listen, I'll, on my whereabouts form, I'll say I'm going to city X and I'll go to city Y. If they show up, the consequence is you get a missed test. I've calculated that roughly, in my opinion, the odds are about 25 to 1 that they won't come during that couple of week period that you're, you're ducking and dodging and you're using steroids and other performance enhancing drugs. Now I understand some of these orals and clear in a few days and some of the creams clear in a day, but you could use stuff that may clear in a week or two weeks and go hide and do this. Well now you've got a cycle under your belt and hey, you likely the odds 25 to one that you didn't even get a missed test. So you can continue to do this until they show up. And then you get a missed test. Well, this is not disclosed. No one knows this. So the advantage is you got a cycle or two under your belt before you get a missed test. But then they'll give you time to, they'll send you a notification, you missed the test, we'll give you a hearing in 30 days, you can show up and give us some, you know, reasonable explanation. Will the tester come back if they miss you one they day, will they come do, back the no, next day? No, they typically do not. So you go and you do it again. And you go out and odds are great that they're not going to come, but if they do, the worst scenario is strike two. And what, what's the penalty for a second strike? There is none. There's no consequence. It's not even disclosed. No one knows. The way it works is much like a speeding ticket on your driving record. You can get one, you can get two, and then every 18 months, the oldest one drops off. Well, so you got 18 months. So the worst case scenario is, man, you got two strikes. You got to wait you got your gold medal, you got your endorsements, you're doing what you're doing, and you wait until that one drops off. I believe this to be true, that there's all sorts of medical doctors and Olympic officials in various sports that are helping these athletes to circumvent the system. So they're aiding and abetting them. I, I believe that to be true. Usain Bolt, the world's fastest man, what do you think the likelihood is he's used illegal performance enhancing drugs? Let me put that in context. You know, Remy Korchimny is a guy that I respect greatly that I continue to work with today and he's a very scientific guy. And he has, he has analyzed lots of Usain Bolt data and in his opinion, the most gifted sprinter that's ever lived. So do I think that he could have broken the world record without using drugs if he has ever used drugs? 
the answer is probably yes. But anytime you're going from 979, you know, down to, to 58, this is, you know, a couple meters here, it's suspicious. Why is it suspicious? Once again, you have to put it into the context. And when I first began to really become suspicious of what, you know, the, the overall Olympic team was doing in Jamaica, is when at the trials that Veronica Campbell didn't even make the team in the 100 meters. Third place was 988. I mean, these girls were, and just to put it into perspective, and specifically, you know, without, I've heard all been told all sorts of things, but I do not have any direct knowledge of this, but I'm just gonna give you an example. When Shelly Ann Frazier, who won the gold medal, in 2007, before the Olympic Games, her lifetime PR was 1135. She shows up at the Olympic Games and runs 1078. Five meters faster? That's highly suspicious. And knowing what I know, and, and as an example, let's talk about Kelly White. Well, Kelly White had run, before she'd ever used anything, 1019. Then she ran 1085. So when you're talking, that's three, four meters faster. That was using a very, in my opinion, effective performance-enhancing drug program. You know, I know what it took for her to run that much faster in a short period of time. The illegal so, performance-enhancing yeah, drug. So for drug. somebody to just come out of nowhere and run five meters faster, that's highly suspicious to me. When you compound that with the Jamaicans got gold, silver, and bronze in the female 100 meters, when was the last time that one small country won all three medals? So that's highly suspicious. And then you look at the, the other aspects and, and all these other athletes. It's all suspicious, not to target Asafa Powell or these other guys, but the former world record holder was from Jamaica. And all of a sudden, here's these athletes that are just, bam, the whole history. Yes, they've always had great athletes and great sprinters, but not this many. Well, right, and I, I mean, the record we're talking about here isn't just any record. It is, for Usain Bolt, the world's fastest man. I mean, this isn't just any track and field, any Olympic record. This is the record, world's fastest man. So taking into account what you know about what it takes to drop uh, the time that quickly with his drop and what you know about what transpires in Jamaica. With all due respect to his talent and his coaching, you can't take that away. And, and so, so if he's using drugs, and I have no direct knowledge that he is, that still doesn't discount the fact that this guy is a genetic freak. He's a gifted guy. This is not just all about drugs. So he deserves, you know, the credit uh, for all the hard work. You know, it, it, you just don't take drugs and, and uh, run 958. How does testing in poor countries that compete in the Olympics compared to the testing of wealthier nations? It's, it's it? easier in a small country. It's easier to do drug testing that, or that to cheat? In the specific Caribbean country, that they had people that worked in connection with security and the airport, and by the time a tester would show up and the name would show up on the manifest. The testers could, even when they did rarely go, could get their keys in the rent-a-car and get to the facility that the athlete's down a, a dirt path somewhere. He's so, not there to be found. So somebody at the airport would tip off the athlete? The answer is yes. How, um, but how good of an example would Jamaica be of the testing problems that 
uh, poor countries have. Let's talk about what I do know about Jamaica for a minute. Without naming names, because this person is, is uh, continuing to be competitive, they were there and trained there on a daily basis for six months, side by side with Usain Bolt. This person never saw a single tester there. They weren't tested. They didn't see anybody else tested. It's a small island. They basically train at the same facility. They work out, a lot of them at the same weight training facility. They never saw any testing or heard about any testing whatsoever for six months. At the stadium, the drug collection facility, when they went and they looked at it and they opened it up, it was an absolutely filthy, dirty closet with boxes piled up with dirt everywhere. This was the supposed specimen collection facility where they collected the samples there at the, at the stadium. For Jamaica. For Jamaica. I mean, they don't have, you know, it's like this, this is where you, the, you give samples and collect samples. The person that told me this was there and, and had interviewed uh, Usain Bolt and went and said, I'd like to see the facility. And this is what they found was a little, basically a little storage room. What do you know about Jackie Joyner Kersey? I don't know anything directly other than what I was told. And, and of course, I guess some may consider it to be a rumor, but I'd, I'd heard that, that there was a positive test for Jackie Joyner. What were you told about the positive test? That it was covered up. Why? Because at a very high level that that decision was made. What else did the person tell you about Jackie Joyner Kersey's situation? Uh, that there were other positives there as well. And I choose not to name names, but, but they indicated that there were were three positive tests at, during 1988. How strongly do you believe in the credibility of the source? This person is about as credible as anybody I know. What were you told about what she was taking? I never did hear the specific uh, drug. And what impact did the positive test that was covered up allegedly have on her? I don't know specifically with her, uh, but I can tell you that that others that were, I were told that did test positive during the same time frame retired. At the height of their economic earning capacity and, and performance. But not her though, right? No. Dr. Wade Exum served as the chief anti-doping officer for the United States Olympic Committee between 1990 to 2000. What did Exum tell you about the number of positive drug tests covered up during that decade? that there were 50 out of 100. Half were covered up. And of those half, what happened? That there, there were, I believe, 19 gold medalists, these athletes that had been uh, tested positive. And instead of receiving any sort of punishment or consequence, they basically went to them and enabled them to use the same drugs but change the taper times so that they later at the Olympic Games didn't get a positive test and embarrass the United States. So they were being coached and 19 of them went on to win gold medals. So you're saying essentially the United States Olympic Committee coached its athletes during that decade, at least a portion of them, how to circumvent the drug testing in order to win gold for the country. That's what I believe. When I talked about this doctor, he basically said, look, directly to the athlete, there's three letters and three numbers as the code to the urine sample. So what I'm going to do, and say it's ABC123, is on the B sample, when I split it, I'm going to leave out a letter. Now, once again, this could be leave out a number, but I'm trying to describe to you the gist of what happened. And I'll just write AC123. So this way, you can tell your lawyer, he can ask for the forms, you can see that there was a, a breach here, and there's some 
discrepancy here with the paperwork and, and this will never come out and it'll be, uh, it'll be tossed on a technicality. So it was an inside job. That's kind of what I'm trying to say in essence here has been going on for a long time. That those who control the dollars until they develop a genuine interest in reducing the rampant use of drugs, it's going to continue. Everyone needs to know that, that uh, as they promote the Olympic Games as a fair competition amongst the nations of the world, I believe it's really about the money that they make from the television rights and that people at the very top who are making the lion's share of the money are controlling what goes on all the way down, including the drug testing and who tests positive and, and who doesn't or whose results become public and whose are covered up. A week after the 1988 Olympics, uh, an official calls you to tell you that your Olympian friend, Greg Trafalis. That was in 1992, and it was at the Olympic trials in, for the United States in New Orleans. What does the official tell you? That uh, your boy tested positive for Dianabol. And what happened from there? I called Greg and asked him if he was using, and he said yes. I knew he, he had been taking stuff. Uh, you know, I, I didn't get directly involved in any of this, but I've been working with athletes for a number of years, and I knew what they were doing. And uh, he confirmed that, yeah, yes, that, that he was taking it. And then a short while later, um, I got a call back, and he said, well, tell your boy that he's off the hook. So what do you mean? And at that time, I believe in 1992, right around that time, it wasn't called USATF, it was, it was called TAC, the Athletic Congress. And I think that's the same year that they switched, that same organization. And apparently, um, one of the elder statesmen had passed away, and, and they had a funeral and a meeting after. And, and uh, as I was told, that uh, they just decided it wasn't a good time for these five positive drug tests to, to come out, that they were going to sweep them under the rug. And in addition to him, I, I wasn't given, given specific names, but um, I was told that, that one of them uh, was from the high jump, a male, and another was from the 400-meter intermediate hurdles. And uh, that day really um, changed my thinking. The 2000 Sydney Olympics, the drive for five, as it was dubbed with Marion Jones trying to win five gold medals at the Olympic Games. Right before the Sydney Games, uh, C.J. Hunter, Marion Jones' then-husband, tests positive. He calls you. What offers made to Hunter? When I saw the results and I got the dates and there were four different positives. What immediately showed me that, he, that this was not from using Nandrolone and that there was something really wrong here was the fact that he had a positive and then the next meet a negative and then the next meet a positive and then the next meet a negative. And then if you take Nandrolone, it stays in your system absolute minimum six months and the longest case documented is a year and a half. But on average a year you just don't test positive one day and negative the, the three days later and positive. And then, so I knew he was doing something that was causing this positive test. And my, my strong suspicion was he was taking a contaminated nutritional supplement. And as it turned out, I did a lot of homework on this. And 
he was trying to lose weight and he felt tired and fatigued and he got this bright idea when they were in Rome, which is where the, I believe the first positive occurred. And he just walked out of the hotel, went down, found a pharmacy and he bought this iron supplement. And he said, well, maybe it's the iron supplement. Well, we still had this. So I said, I need to get all this information, got the bottle and figured out what the lot number was. And it just, the crazy part about it was, I recognized the name of the company it was being sold in Italy, but it said made by this lab that was in New York at the time. I said, well, I know the guy that runs this lab. In fact, this guy's one of my customers. So I went back to this guy and I said, listen, there's a guy that tested positive for this, and he was taking this product. And can you go back and look at all the, and I'd actually been to the place. I'd walked around, seen the facility. I knew the manufacturing uh, place. And I, and I noticed that they had three machines in the same room with the same air filtration system. So we got all the way back to the run and I found out that a multi-species pro-hormone was being manufactured at the same time on the same day as this iron supplement. What offer did they make to Hunter? The head at the time, or one of the heads of the IAAF, came to CJ and said, listen, you know, we know that Marion's the darling of the upcoming Olympic Games. What and, we want you to do, and he had made the team, by the way. What we want you to do is go out in front of a stadium full of people, fake an injury, act like you hurt your knee, and then withdraw. And then we don't bring this up. So we get to Sydney. Marion had already won the 100-meter gold in the spectacular finish, by winning by over four meters. And all of a sudden, this early morning, I get a call from CJ, and, and he tells me, bam, there's a positive test. They're coming forward with this stuff. We need to come and talk to you. Next thing you know... And this was in Sydney. It had been linked Sydney. to the media. This is in Sydney. And so I got up very early that morning and went and met them outside, and there was a kind of a large van, and there were members of Nike and, and members of, of NBC, and... CJ and he basically said, tell them what you got about this positive test and what I knew. So they pick you up in the van. So they pick me up in the van and then they say, well now we want to take you to this hotel and we're having this big meeting uh, that was basically being headed up by Johnny Cochran. And so we stopped on the way and we picked up Marion and so as we're driving, and it's me and Marion in the back, and CJ and Johnny in the next, and, and we're talking, and all of a sudden they call one of the other, either NBC or, or Nike executives, and we hear, oh my God, they're, it's like they were timing it. First there was one positive, now they leaked another positive, and there's another po now there's four positives. So this is all escalating, you know, oh my God, what, what are we going to do now? And so we picked up Marion, we went to this hotel, we had this meeting with Johnny and this whole team of people and there was all kinds of, I don't want to name names, but very famous spin doctors, media people. And so I explained to them, listen, I'm, I'm not a doctor, I don't have, I'm not a PhD or an MD, but I can explain all this to you. So I tried to hook them up with a couple of people that I knew, one was an MD and the other was a, was a PhD. And they talked to them to see if they could present this information. And once they talked to them, they just figured they couldn't explain it. And 
all of a sudden this decision was made and they said, well, we don't care, you're our doctor. So you're going to go and you're going to explain this to a thousand people in the grand ballroom at this big hotel from media from all over the entire world. And the next thing you know, we're at this hotel, there's this big meeting, and they're pushing up, it's Johnny and me and, and CJ. So I tried to give the explanation. I answered as many questions as I could. Um, it was the strangest day of my life. Uh, they literally carried me there. I mean, by the arms to get up there, it was just a big sea of people. And when the press conference was over, these same two security guys just brought me off the stage and we walked down this long hallway and they just opened these, the, this push door and they said, okay, thanks a lot, and kind of pushed me outside and closed the door. I'm standing in this alley, and I'd just been, and I went, so I walked to the closest street I could find and got in a cab, and, and I went back to the hotel. And long story short, when we tried to negotiate the deal with CJ, our request was he would just walk away and, and retire from sport, but what he wanted and what I wanted and what Johnny, we were pushing for in the meeting was a commission to study contaminated nutritional supplements. And originally we were negotiating with USATF. They made all sorts of promises to us that they broke. I don't want to name the specific attorney involved, but they told us one thing and did something else. But long story short, within six months, the International Olympic Committee did a huge um, study of online as well as in the stores of over 650 products and they determined whether it be calcium, multivitamins, whey protein, whatever it was, they just walked in and randomly purchased vitamin C, all kinds of products. 20% of those on the shelf and that they purchased uh, online would create a positive test for an Olympic athlete. Boxer Shane Mosley, how did you both begin working together? I was contacted by his um, strength and conditioning coach at the time, Daryl Hudson. And we talked, and initially I probably just sent uh, some nutritional supplements to him, and it was at a distance. And the, and the more we talked, um, it became about other um, undetectable substances and so on. And then eventually uh, he let me know that he and Shane would like to fly up and meet with me. And so on Saturday, June 26, 2003, that's what happened. They, they flew from uh, Southern California up to Oakland Airport. And, and they were picked up in a limousine, actually the company that was a couple doors down from Balco, Gateway Limousine, and uh, brought over and he had his blood collected first at the hospital over the freeway and then we had a little chat and then he got his blood collected and then he came back and, and uh, we talked about some of the uh, substances and methods that could be available to him. What knowledge do you have of any illegal performance enhancing drug usage, Mosley, was involved in prior to taking Balco's illegal performance enhancing drugs? You hear a lot of rumors. You know, you hear things about this guy and that guy and he had used performance enhancing drugs before he ever met me. Now whether that's true again, you know, I, I don't know. I'm just telling you that's what I'd heard. You've said you taught him how to inject himself and you even were nearby when he injected himself with EPO. What do you recall from that? I was sitting at my desk and he was sitting directly across from me, and behind him was Daryl Hudson, his strength and conditioning coach. And once we got to the, uh, the portion where it was time to learn how to administer the drugs, I came around the desk and 
And he stepped back over here and we sat knee to knee and I basically showed him specifically how to inject EPO. We, we did something called uh, a double saturation point method, which means that you take half of it and put it in one side of, of your belly button and the rest you put into the other side. And by you, It increases the effectiveness and, of the, of the uh, drug by doing half a cc here and half a cc here as opposed to a single injection. Uh, can you explain what these are? Uh, this is the calendar that we made up, or the two calendars that we made up that day together um, with him sitting at my desk. So, you know, the big issue uh, obviously had to do with whether he knowingly did it or, or whether he was told that, uh, that he w was being given vitamins and, and it turned out, you know, that I'd misled him. Right, and, and he calls you essentially a liar and filed a defamation suit against you. What ever came of the defamation lawsuit? It's been voluntarily dismissed. Voluntarily dismissed. That's the legal verbiage. And why was that? I guess he decided to drop the case. For somebody like you who he filed the defamation suit, I would Not imagine. Not one, but two. First one in federal court in San Francisco, and then a second one in New York Supreme Court in New York. What happens to the money you had to put up legally for your defense? I just have to absorb that. What impact did the illegal performance enhancing drugs have on Mosley that you could tell in his fights? He performed very well in the what they call the championship rounds. Uh, he was probably behind the fight and he won 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, the end of the fight. Oscar started gassing out and of course the reason you take EPO is to increase your recovery between rounds and give you stamina at the end of the fight. And that was the reason that we were doing it, and, and it seemed to work like planned. What Balco illegal performance enhancing drugs do you believe Barry Bonds took? I believe that, that Barry Bonds took the clear. This much I'm sure of. Did not hit 73 home runs or 762 because he was taking the clear and the cream. What do you think the likelihood is that Barry Bonds was taking illegal performance enhancing drugs that were not supplied by Balco? Well, the only thing that I know, let's go back and answer your first question. Major League Baseball tested him during the survey year, and the first time they ran the test, it came back clean. Later, Nowitzki took the sample back to Don Catlin, and they tested it for THG, and it came back positive. That's what we know. So that means that he took it. Apparently, if it's in his urine and they've got a positive drug test. The question is, was it knowingly or unknowingly? All this stuff that's in the game of shadows is garbage, okay? Them saying, oh, he wore this size jersey and then he wore this size uh, shoe and then, oh, his head got bigger and all this stuff. When I was his age, when you see those pictures of him and he's real skinny, I weighed 145 pounds. Well, yeah, but I mean, in fairness, the man also put on 20 pounds in an off season, which, I mean, maybe it could be done with he, he just, did. And that's just exactly legal what, what supplements, he put on. but that he does raise eyebrows. Yes, he put on 20 pounds. Now, let me, let me say this. If you had never trained with weights before and you jumped up your caloric intake and you knew the right timing with all the nutrition and you already weighed, he's six two and a half. he's a tall guy, is it possible through 
proper nutrition and weight training to put on 20 pounds in a year? And the answer is yes. So you're saying he had never trained with weights before? I don't believe he He may have lifted a weight, but he, believe me, Greg Anderson, the way he trains, is very, very intense with heavy weights. And could you gain 20 pounds? And other people have seen this too. I don't know if Barry wears you know, a lot of clothes under his clothes, like thermal or something. But the day that, that, and this was in 2003, when he was at the biggest, and he weighed 228 or weighed 230. Now, I'm used to looking at regular guys, but I'm telling you, six, two and a half at, at 228 is not a big guy. So I was actually surprised that he was as thin as he was. So let's put it in context. I know you're wanting to get my opinion here. Did he or didn't he? Obviously, it's highly suspicious that he could have been using performance-enhancing drugs. I just don't have any direct knowledge of that. Why do you feel it was highly suspicious? I talked about with Kelly White. I talked about with Shelly Ann Frazier. I talked about these other athletes for the same reasons. The increase in performance to go from 49 to 73. The numbers, of course, when you see that he'd been playing for a long period of time and all of a sudden here comes this giant improvement in performance. Is that suspicious? Yes, it is. Why do you feel compelled to, in some sense, defend him? I feel responsible for everything that's happened to every athlete that was associated with Balco and, and what happened to all their families and their careers. And, and, and if you notice, I've been very selective with the people that I've spoken out about. And those that have either themselves or their legal teams have called me all sorts of names or they've said that I duped them or I tricked them or I deceived them. And there's been a number of them that I could name, Kelly White, Tim Montgomery, Marion Jones, Shane Mosley, I've spoken out to set the record straight. If I have knowledge and somebody has said something that's not right and I feel that it's important to set the record straight, I will speak out. And I've told you, you know, off the record that people have come to me and said, listen, we want you to testify against this guy. If you really want to help USADA, then you'll come and testify. Well, that guy hasn't done anything to me. The whole reason he got involved in, in performance within performance enhancing drugs was because of me. So what? You know, now they want me to be the guy to come in and, and after he's already laying, you know, knocked out in the gutter to stomp on his teeth? It's not gonna happen. Marion Jones. Tell me about the illegal performance enhancing drug program that you created for her. The clear EPO growth hormone and insulin. And speaking of Marion Jones, can you tell me what these documents are? Uh, it's the outdoor season of 2001 for Marion Jones. These are her drug calendars. And what do they generally entail? The four drugs that I just named. And so the initials on each day lists the drug or drugs that she's supposed to take on those dates? Well, that's exactly what it is. And it's from May through August. You know, once again, in, in, in Marion's case, you know, the times that I, the few times that, that I had the opportunity to talk with her, she's, she's a very likable person. Um, you know, I believe that 
the other female athletes, as an example, that you see in the wall in there that uh, were part of that 100 meters. Um, once again, this is my opinion. In that very race in the final, I believe that the overwhelming majority of the other girls, if not 100% of the girls in that race, were also using performance-enhancing drugs. So Marion is a tremendously talented athlete and works, I mean, her work ethic is, is legendary. Everybody knows this. And so, that's in the 2000 Olympics that you're talking about. So if, that, if yes. that's the case and her other competitors were also using well, illegal performance enhancing drugs, believe. how does that shape your opinion of her being stripped of her medals? Boy, it's really tough because she's been held to a completely different standard than everybody else. If they were scrutinized and some of the law enforcement tools and pressures were applied to others like they were to her, I think this stuff would come out. And, and I do have knowledge that some of the other girls that were in that race were using stuff. And I'd been told this by their coaches or I'd even given them stuff. So this is, this is stuff that uh, I don't want to blame Marion Jones or Shane Mosley, you know, a couple of the athletes that have really filed these lawsuits and, and in my opinion, abused the judicial system and just went way beyond just, you know, defending them, themselves. I really believe their lawyers, that they were following their attorney's advice and they were getting very bad advice. Do you think she should have been allowed to keep those 2000 Sydney Olympic medals? No, I don't. I mean, she got caught. Others did not. They're not going to go back. I, I've told them this, that there's, there's information there's about other athletes. And, and if you go back and look at these other athletes that are in those, those races with her, it's the small countries, many of them in the Caribbean. It's the Russians. It's, it's people that I believe and have been told by, I, I think, credible people. And once again, maybe they're lying to me, but I believe the overwhelming majority were using stuff too. And, uh, and, and sponsored and by doctors and team officials that had knowledge of this. And they were winning gold medals. They were being granted beachfront property worth millions of dollars. Um, and this is back in 2000. You granted, you're given the beachfront property by their country? From the government. Okay. And I believe that, you know, in, in one specific case, and, and as soon as I, I can't say a name because it would be exactly who it is, but I believe that and was told that even some of the drugs that I had given to Trevor Graham for Marion were siphoned off and given to other people that were in some of these races and, and competitors and training partners and, and other, you know, and there were open discussions about this stuff. Trevor Graham being Marion Jones' coach, she won three gold medals, two bronze at the 2000 Sydney Games. Uh, what illegal performance-enhancing drugs did she use leading up to the games, during the games, and how do you think it impacted her performance? I believe that it, the whole drive for five, and I think she was able to continue to recover quickly and perform at a higher level in multiple events. So I think it did make a, a difference. So, right, I mean, which drugs, though, did she use leading up to and during the games? 
all of the above that I mentioned before. Okay. And during the game's growth hormone. How much knowledge did she have of what she was taking? She knew exactly what she was doing. She did, as you mentioned, file a $25 million defamation lawsuit against you. What came of the lawsuit? Voluntarily dismissed. Why did you stop working together? Great question. Marion became reckless. Once, once CJ was no longer there and they separated and uh, there were some issues that we had regarding her compliance and some things that she were, was doing in general terms that to me uh, were dangerous. And uh, there was all sorts of stuff going on w with that camp, uh, you know, under Trevor and Tim. And, and uh, it was kind of a package deal that Marion was doing things that, that um, I felt were potentially dangerous regarding her health. And... Uh, did it pertain to with illegal drugs? Yes. Yeah. And drugs that were being siphoned off and given to other female athletes that were initially intended for her. And there was money involved with, with uh, Tim Montgomery with me that, uh, um, you know, after he had made $600,000, money I had loaned him with check, cancel checks and, you know, it was all for equipment and different things. It was all well documented. He just didn't want to pay and was saying, well, I want to buy a strip club and, and you know, can I pay you half now and half later and, and just kept not paying and not paying. And, and eventually I just decided that uh, I'd kick them all to the curb. Thanks for listening to the In-Depth with Graham Bensinger podcast. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Graham Bensinger. And visit GrahamBensinger.com for TV times in your area. Also, don't forget to check out our YouTube channel at YouTube.com slash Graham Bensinger for hours of extra content. If you enjoyed this episode, please give us a rating and review on iTunes or wherever else you listen. This has been the In-Depth with Graham Bensinger podcast.